It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, it's July 9th, 2020. I'm Tal Becker, Senior Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute here in Jerusalem, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a new podcast from Hartman's I Engage project. On each episode of For Heaven's Sake, Doniel Hartman, the president of the Institute, and myself will break down a contemporary issue of Israeli life that's central and challenging to both Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, director of the Hartman faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. For heaven's sake, it's not about talking politics or taking sides. It's about trying to articulate the most morally serious versions of the various sides of an argument, whether we agree with them or not, so we can talk to each other, listen to each other, and strengthen Jewish peoplehood. We will focus on the values and ideas underlying an issue and not on their particular political manifestation. Our aim is to deepen engagement with Israel to foster greater tolerance and understanding across political and tribal divides, to discover a values consensus wherever possible, and most significantly, to explore what Israel can mean in the life of Jews around the world. So thank you for listening, and let's dive right in. This week, tolerating the intolerable. Donil, it's great to be with you. You know, there's this term I've been hearing more and more uh, lately, uh, cancel culture. Uh, You hear it a lot in America, but it exists in Israel as a practice in a way as well. This idea that there are some opinions or some expressions that are so objectionable, so problematic, that we can't give them a platform. We have to kind of shut them out. Uh, You see this, I mean, you've seen it in Israeli debates in the past, and occasionally there'll be an article where someone is felt as saying something so terrible, you know, we we have to completely reject it. And in a way, it pushes against this other big idea in the Jewish tradition, which is kind of an idea that welcomes disagreement and argument. You know, this podcast is called For Heaven's Sake. It's building on that idea from the Mishnah, that you have machlokot l'shem shamayim, arguments for the sake of heaven. In other words, arguments are a healthy thing. Arguments, in a way, are a way of pursuing this truth that none of us can exhaust by ourselves. And so we say, I have to look for the validity in someone else's view. I have to question what's morally weak about my own position. And somehow that way I increase the truth in the world, some kind of measure of justice as well. But then this cancel culture comes in, pushing against that, in a way pushing against freedom of speech and says, at least as I understand it, at some moments, there are things we can't tolerate, right? So this idea of tolerating the intolerable, uh, it's a contradiction in terms, but how do you understand 
the way we should think about this issue? When is it tolerable and when is it intolerable? See, tolerating the intolerable is really, it is a contradiction in terms. But I think we're at a very, I don't know if it's, it's not a unique moment in history. There are many moments like this, but it is a transitional moment when there's a couple of things that are happening. One of them is that more and more people are embodying positions that others deem to be intolerable. Right. We're, we're shifting right now. We're aware of the fact that our core consensuses are changing. And so, again, in the midst of our society, there are mainstream positions that are intolerable. Now, by definition, intolerability is supposed to be a fringe. A society, if a majority of people do something, by definition, it's not intolerable. I mean, not morally, from a sociological... I remember you gave that example with speeding. If too many people speed a little bit over the speed limit, it, by definition, is a tolerable uh, thing, right? If it's normative, it can't be intolerable. Right. But we're in the midst of shifting. So all of a sudden... We are, our, our moral consciousness is awakening. There are things that are bothering us, call it again for the first time, or we're seeing them in a different way. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, whether it's on issues of gender or whether it's on issues of, 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 Israeli, of Israel's borders or democracy or religion, there are certain issues that all of a sudden, in the midst of our society, we're encountering the intolerable. And therefore, the issue of, of whether we could tolerate them is not a conceptual issue. It's an issue of to what extent our society could even continue to survive. But, Donnell, let me ask, why do you think it's happening now? Like, is it social media? Is it this increased kind of tribalism and polarization? Or what, what's the trigger for this uh, dynamic? No, I, I don't think so. I think we're in the midst of a serious value I don't know if it's reclarification or it's resensitivization. You know, for 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 thousands of years we have this notion of what's hateful unto you, do not do unto others. That's the whole Torah. Or Khan says, don't act in such a way unless you'd be willing for your behavior to be um, universalizable. There is a notion that you're supposed to apply your moral principles to everyone, but who the everyone is was very narrow. In Athens, it was to the few who were the citizens. That was their initial democracy. For much of our history, it applied only to men. It applied to white men. It didn't apply to women. It didn't apply to people who had different religious orientation than you, different national, different racial orientations. Part of what's happening in the last 20, 30 years, and I think it's actually more than that. It started in the 60s, but we are slowly peeling away more and more what ought to be the parameters, who's what's hateful unto you, do not do unto others. And then all of a sudden, some of us are saying, you know, like again, Palestinians, are they another? And all of a sudden, once they become the other who you see, your behavior is completely intolerable. Refugees, women. And so I think we're at a really interesting moment in our moral history where the parameters of the other are changing. And then until we don't flatten that curve and all come to speak on the same term, we're not having political debates. 
there's a profound moral conflict going on, and it's very powerful, and I would say it's potentially a great moment. You know, Daniel, it reminds me of this concept that I read about called norm cascades, which is this idea about how norms change in a society. When is that moment of inflection when something that was okay is no longer seen as okay? What does it take? And, you know, in in this podcast, one of the things we're going to try to do is really think carefully about how best to articulate different positions. Let's give a little bit of time to this view of what we might call the cancel culture. This idea, you know, the way I think about it is those who advocate for this say that, you know, I remember seeing this movie once that said the time for justice is always now, right? It's always now. So the idea that, that there's this injustice in front of you that requires a kind of urgency in the debate a kind of rupture that forces the change which doesn't allow you to be kind of pluralistic or morally pluralistic it actually would argue that that kind of moral pluralism is not moral at that moment because it's perpetuating an injustice is that how you would make the case what do you think the strengths and weaknesses i would have to make a case for the cancel culture even though very Deep part of me rejects it. Right. Deep part of me wants to continue talking, and we'll talk about that. I want want to talk about that more later. But I think there is something embedded in the cancel culture which is forcing us to confront a lot of our moral status quo. And as you said, I don't know if you get off the status quo gradually. You know, whether you take one little step and another little step or another little step or whether somebody just doesn't have to say, excuse me, no. Now, by nature, when you do that, there's a violence to it, and you're going to go too far. But I don't know if if change and social change happens gradually. You know, in, 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 in Aristotelian ethics, the ideal is always the middle road. Right. But the middle road is, is mediocre. There is no middle road. It's really a zigzag. And, Especially and I if think it's part of the cancel culture right? is pushing us. It's yeah. pushing us to now. And then you have to, we have to make sure that you don't cancel the cancel because at the end, everybody's <laughs> going to stop listening to everybody. Right. And that's, but, but there's something powerful. And as you, I liked what you said, where, where the time for justice is always, there's now, now, excuse me, not tomorrow. And uh, I think it's forcing us to move off of our status quo, sometimes too quickly. And sometimes when you move off the status quo, you make a mistake. Yeah. But I think the best argument for the cancel culture is that the status quo is inherently dangerous. And therefore, the notion that I'm entering into a, it, I'm leaving safety. No, status quo is moral mediocrity. And I think, and I, I, I hear that. And, what, and I know personally that that even though I, I, I don't feel comfortable with it, that discomfort makes me think. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, some of the debates in Israel around the Oslo Agreement, around disengagement and so on, where there was this kind of group think in one direction. And then there were voices that were, you know, sometimes seen as illegitimate. It really does raise this question about when you allow for discussion, 
to enable a kind of lively social culture and so on, and when you have to push for change. The thing that's that kind of I would raise as a question if we kind of move a little bit to the other side is how sustainable is radical change as opposed to gradual change? Because something about this dynamic at the moment, to me at least, does have to do with the tribalism of this moment and this kind of uh, oscillating back and forth. You know, this I call it the repeal and replace culture, right? The repeal and replace idea, not just for Obamacare, but the way in which groups with very different ideas say, if I get power, I'm going to undo whatever you did. The other group says, if I get power, I'm going to undo whatever you did. And you end up with this kind of self-defeating uh, dynamic. I'm with you. As an educator, not as a pure political activist, as an educator, I trust gradual processes. But there's another reason why my instinct, even though I I understand the value, I can make a case for it, where I find cancel culture could go wrong. See, as a Jew, I have no Judaism separate from the Jewish people. One of my problems as a Jew is that what Jews do is also part of what Judaism is. So I'm forced... Even the opinion that I reject, I have to listen to. I at least have to try. I have to try to move them. I have to try to understand them. I also have to be really careful before I call someone intolerable. I have to be really careful. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't moments where, where it's simple. And let, let, this is, I know, our audience, let's, let's put this out of, outside of the discussion. There are places where we know yeah. this absolutely is out of the conversation. Anybody who advocates for the discrimination or the degradation of anybody on the basis of race, religion, nationality, gender, sorry, I'm not, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear it's tired. It's difficult to do. I'm there. But most of our conversations aren't, aren't at that place. And when cancel culture is used not for the radical, but as just an average response where instead of arguments you just discount the person you're this is outside or that's why i hate the term you don't get it yeah. like i get it like i own it i own they, it they I never say what the, the it is by the way they just say it right they never it's, define no, what it's, the it is it's it's they because the, yeah. the issue is they uh, we are those who get yeah. they don't that's not the way like we're gonna end up with the various tribes of of the Jewish people just walking away from each other. We, Judaism, more than it unites us, divides us. Israeli politics, more than it unites us, divides us. Now, we don't have enough Jews dying on an ongoing basis, thank God, to transcend it. And so the, the issue of tolerating the intolerable becomes a not just a political necessity, but for me a religious necessity because I could only be a Jew if I am with the Jewish people. What Jew obligates me? I hear you. I want to make two points here. First, just an important distinction 
at least that that I think would be worth making. I remember Sasha Baron Cohen did this when he received that ADL prize. He said, freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. I love that line. So it doesn't mean that you might not have the freedom to say objectionable or intolerable things, but we don't have an obligation to give you a platform in order to do so, right? We don't have to broadcast that live. And now today, particularly where it's so easy for intolerable voices to get exploded out through social media, maybe social media has a special obligation there. I just wanted to put that to a side. I don't think we're questioning the right to say these things as a matter of freedom of speech. We're questioning whether we give them legitimacy and voice and a space in the New York Times op-ed column or on the... No, I think it's... But let me me make the second point. I want to go to the second point for a second. You know, it reminds me of... In Cheta Egel, in the Golden Calf story, where Aaron is described as kind of cooperating in a way, at least if you read the simple text, cooperating with the Jewish people in what they are doing, which is one of the worst of the worst, which is uh, idol worship, right? And it's almost like when I read that text, I think Aaron himself is saying, this is where the Jewish people are. And if this is where the Jewish people are, I have to find a way to give space to give space for it. Um, it's not just tolerating a different view. It's saying, if I look at my community, if my community is there, that's who I have to be with. And and therefore, there has to be room for that. And that pushes against, I think, this idea. No, you're right. But I think you're, it's bringing up Aaron in this context is really interesting, Tal. Because Aaron was much more beloved than Moshe. Yeah. <laughs> he was much more beloved. And our tradition says, doesn't say, uh, be, be of the students of Moshe. Right. It says, be of the students of Aaron, yeah. who loves peace, loves peace and pursues peace. And it is the path of Aaron which brings people closer to Torah. See, it, we need to find a way to talk. Now, I could accept that if we're talking about decisions and voting, parties and campaigns, there is this moment of black, white, in, out, right, wrong. But we have to talk with each other. This podcast that we're going to be engaging in is going to be raising some of the most difficult issues facing the Jewish people. And now one of them is, how do we even learn how to talk? How do we talk? Can we talk with each other? Now, the minute if I somehow am tolerant of you, then somehow I am accepting um, racism, I'm collaborating with immorality, everything is, we're not going to be able to work together. Our disagreements are so deep, are so deep on every issue. Annexation, Palestinian rights, refugees, state and religion, religious pluralism, democracy, the Jewish people, denominations. They're, they're so profoundly deep. We have so, to know, recognize that our, the def, I would say like this, the definition of our era is the era where we are inhabiting the mutually intolerable. Now, that means that sociologically, we have to develop a new language, not a language of agreement and not a language of becoming morally parav, but saying, I want to, how do I talk with you? Could I move you one step? Maybe I thought you were intolerable, and maybe I could actually make a moral you know, argument you know, for Daniel, you. Daniel, um, so let me put it this way from what I've heard so far and what we've discussed so far. 
a big argument for uh, cancel culture is the urgency of an injustice and the risk of perpetuating an injustice. Right. But a big argument against it, at least in some circumstances, is that it, it breaks down community. It doesn't allow you, if you're stuck together, no matter what, you know, Israelis are stuck, right? Israelis, in fact, and Palestinians Jewish are stuck. people are stuck. The Jewish Americans are stuck. Exactly. And in that scenario, the option of saying, I can't hear you, I'm shutting you out, is not a way in which you can actually live. It's not a way you can build anything. And I think that, you know, let's talk a little bit more about the, there's a Jewish component to this too, which is the very idea of truth and the pursuit of truth, right? Because there is something in cancel culture, I think you could make the argument, that suggests that you can make a claim about truth, your monopoly over it, which is a little bit foreign, I think, to a big part of our Jewish sensibilities. I think that, you know, I really have been trying lately to make this effort. Can I articulate a view that I disagree with in a way that the person who has that view says, that's what I mean, exactly. And can I do that well enough in a way that makes me humble, even if I have convictions, right? Right. Now, I think I like that a lot. Now, how do we do that some of the time? This yeah. is the dance. Yeah. The dance is, is that there, I would say that there has to be truth. And there has to be places where we know, excuse me, this is outside of the lot. conversation. But because there are places, it doesn't mean that every discourse we could understand that level of truth. I think deep... Can you give me an example, Daniel? Can you give me an example of a line? I mean... I could give you a very clear example. You know, if we want to get straight into Israeli politics. What Israel should do with Palestinians now? On the one hand, one articulation is what's hateful unto you, do not do unto others. This is injustice immediate. At the same time, the realities of the last 10, 15, 20 years makes at least legitimate to question whether Palestinians want peace and whether we can live with that peace process. We're going to have, we'll talk about this in greater depth, I'm sure, at another time. But right now, here's a moment. I have a truth. My truth is all people should be created in the image of God. Simple. That means what's hateful unto you, do not do not do unto others. Just as I value Jewish independence, I should value other people's independence. I would go there. But at the same time, could Israel now do another unilateral move without destroying itself at this moment in our history? That's just an example of where the what seems to be true... Do I actually own? Does any single position own the truth? on what is the best way to move forward and to achieve peace right now. Yeah. You know, I think one of the key things about this is is what's your default position, right? So uh, I, I uh, saw this thing that you we have this idea of making a straw man, or I should say today these days a straw person of an argument. You want to disagree with someone, so you make a caricature of their argument and you break it down. And I wonder whether we should shift to an obligation to make a steel person, right? It's called steel manning in the language of today, but steel personing, I will call it, making a, the best version of the argument you disagree with because your default position is, I want to be in relationship with you. My default See, position or is... Or I would say, make the best argument and then you'll know 
whether this is a line or not. Yeah. I, would make, I would make the following point. We need our red lines. Yeah. The question is whether I'll we have there. them at the beginning of the conversation or at the end of a conversation. Right. And I would argue that Jewish peoplehood and humility requires of you to before you start, you might, don't start with canceling. Listen, push, try to make that argument and you might find that there's somebody else because at the end of the day, when we talk about a big tent, the big tent is not arguments that somebody should accept me. It has to ask, who are you willing to accept? Who are you willing to push yourself to say, I think you're wrong, but you're part of the tent of the Jewish people and you're part of the tent of the Israeli discourse? You know, I want to bring Ilana into this and maybe we can learn a bit of text. I wanted to just say that I heard heard it said that the definition of being pro-Israel is not necessarily to agree with everyone, everything that Israel does or support everything that Israel does. It is to have a default position that you want to believe the best version. You want to give a chance to the best version. Or even not wanting, just try. Just trying, right. No, just and try. I, before you say it's try, give yeah. it that process. All right. So, I mean, I think that's part. the big part of this idea is that in addition to this comp, uh commitment to justice and commitment to serious argument is a commitment to peoplehood and relationship and community. But let's bring Ilana in. Ilana, it's so great to have you with us. I mean, this is a major topic in Jewish Hi, texts. Ilana. Uh, great yeah. to be here. And I have to say, I would not have bet that you would have quoted Sasha Baron Cohen on this. <laughs> and I think that's just fantastic. Um, what I heard here is a conversation about community and a conversation about truth. Right? The idea that you need to be able to tolerate certain things in order to be in community. And also that actually there are different parts of truth. And especially when it comes to context, it's not just about a party line, but it's actually contextually. There's such a thing about tr- as truth. I actually want to bring in the most pluralistic text in rabbinic thought and take a deeper look at it to think about it in the context of what you've said. And that is when the Gemara talks about the arguments between the House of Hill and the House of Shammai. Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. It's a Hartman classic, no? It's the, it's pro- it, Basically, it should be on exactly. You should all walk around with the calling card. And the Gemara says that for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel, were fighting, were arguing. And this group was saying the halacha, the, the law follows us. And that group was saying the law follows us. And then suddenly this voice after three years, this echo from heaven comes out and says, these and these are the words of the living God. Elu ve'elu divrei elokim chayim. But the law is like Beit Hillel. And the Gemara says, well, wait a second. If both of these are the laws of the words of the living God, why, why is the law like Beit Hillel? And this is precisely what you're talking about, which is, well, the Gemara answers Beit Hillel, they were forbearing and they listened before they spoke. They actually mentioned the opinion of Beit Shammai before they mentioned their own. Now, this is a really nice programmatic statement about pluralism, but I want to dig a little bit deeper on three different measures. One is the context of what are these arguments between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel? This is so incredibly strange. Hillel and Shammai were first century BCE to first century CE figures. It's literally the beginning of the rabbinic project. How is it possible that their own students suddenly explode into two different schools? It's so early in the process. This is not like 300 years have elapsed and now suddenly we have arguments. 
And before this Gemara was ever put pen to paper, so to speak, there are earlier conversations about what the Machlokot, the arguments of Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, are and how we look at them. And I think this Gemara reflects kind of a pivot point. If you look in earlier rabbinic literature, you find two approaches. One approach is the reason why Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel had these arguments is because they did a bad job learning from their teachers. Their arguments are a result of error, should never be. But the other approach in earlier versions and earlier conversations in rabbinic literature is that actually both of them really belong. Their opinions are not a result of error, but they're actually a result of the expansiveness and the largesse. So at the very beginning, when we mention anything about Beit Hill and Beit Shammai arguing, you have to ask yourself, do you see this argument as something that's a flaw? Is argument a flaw, a bug? Is it a bug or a feature? Is it a bug or a, a feature? A bug or a feature. Yeah. And in this Gemara, you can, you can feel it pulsating, that question, because you have them arguing back and forth, basically saying, halachas like me, halachas like me. It's a bug. And then you have the botkol, the heavenly voice, come out and say, no, 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 no. It's a feature. So that's the first thing that I want to notice. So in other words, is the pursuit of truth, right, is it by definition elusive? We're always going to disagree, and that's the essence of it. Or is it a problem that we have to solve? Exactly. And saying? I think that this Gemara, if we read it carefully, what we see is that the schools thought it was a problem they had to solve, and it was the divine approach that says, wait a second, this is not a problem. This is exactly, this is what it is, right? This is who we're meant to be. But then I want to go on to ask the question of, okay, Elu ve'elu, these and these, how pluralistic are they really? Because you don't have to read Elu ve'elu, these and these are the words of the living God, as saying that they're equally appropriate positions. You actually could read them as saying, these have a little truth, that has a little truth, and you put them together, you can get a composite truth. You could even say they're actually not even in their depth and their profundity. They simply are both valid. Right. And I want to I want to reflect on what you were saying earlier about cancel culture. There's almost an all or nothing approach. It's either our perspectives are equally valid or my perspective is completely right and yours is completely wrong. It is possible that Elu Ve'elu, these and these are the words of the living God, is actually trying to say, you know what? One approach may be better. The law may be like Beit Hillel. And yet that doesn't mean that Beit Shammai's approach is completely wrong. So we actually may have to see it as percentages sometimes, right? Moreover, what we see here is that obviously the practice of trying to come to understand the theory of the other side, even if the law is going to be only like one, even at the end of the day, even though at the end of the day we have to choose one, that there is something in pursuing the theoretical opinions even if in practice that's not the way that it's going to work out. We all know there's going to be an answer. Annexation, no annexation. We all know monuments, take them down, don't take them down. But the question of actually pursuing the theoretical is really, really big. You know, Ilana, it makes me think, it just makes me think that, that you know, that this Talmudic tradition of learning the, the view that the halacha doesn't follow, that the law doesn't follow, and figuring out exactly what it was about, is also about sustaining the community, right? Particularly if you're going to follow the other view. If I want to keep, right. if I want to be able to stay in relationship and keep them as part of the community, I have an extra obligation 
to teach and understand the view I'm not following and, and kind of hold them with me, right? Yes. And I would say that there's a flip side to that coin because one way to keep people with you is to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to follow Beit Hillel, but we understand Beit Shammai. Another way to do it, which we see much more often in rabbinic decision-making, is not to make programmatic statements about the truth of different opinions. But we see a handful of cases, maybe more, where the rabbis don't say anything about the truth of the positions, but do articulate, you can follow this opinion and you'll be fine. You can follow that opinion and you'll be fine. And what they're saying there is not even necessarily an argument about truth and what's right, but it may simply be a statement of, we don't know ultimately. And therefore we do know that practically speaking, we can't say the law follows Beit Hillel. We have to leave the option for Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. And I think that's powerful too. See, I think it's, I, I really appreciate your reading of these and these are the words of the living God. Because the notion that there has to be complete symmetry in these and these, um, which is the classic reading, you know, as you're saying, why do you make that assumption? And I think you're right. There's no, it's not, it's not essential. But I think it's important to distinguish. You said one possibility is we don't know, but the voice from heaven says, I know. And it says, both are the words of the living God. So what it is doing, it's, it's not claiming that there is no truth. It's asking of us to expand, to recognize that there could be more than one truth. Now, your interpretation is making that more palatable because you're saying there could be more than one truth. But there's truthfulness. There's enough truthfulness to go around. Mm-hmm. I don't have to claim that they're all equal. That's a big innovation that you're putting today. Absolutely. And, and you know, I can't take credit for it. People who have spoken about it, scholars who write about it, they have, they have opinions on it, too, that I've learned and thought about. You know, Ilana, Ilana, there's another aspect of this, which is it says these and these, but it doesn't say those, right? In other words, what is the, there's an element outside of this, this conversation. And, and part of the challenge of tolerating the intolerable, right? You could say Bechama and Bechilal are two tolerable views, each of them with some measure of truth. But what about... That the non-Beit Shammai, non-Beit Hillel view, so, where does that stand? Great. So I want to talk about the word machloket, the word argument. The word machloket is not actually what we think it means. It's not argument. It's machlaka. It's a sect. It's a group. In fact, one way to read this is that what we're doing in saying these and these are the words of the living God is we're avoiding schism. You can imagine that specifically because Hillel and Shammai were early on and their students were early on, what people remembered was the sectarianism of the temple period, where it was, you're in, you're out, you're out, you're out, kind of like what we feel now. It's a lot of cancel culture around each other. And this is a huge innovation. The innovation is to say, we're not going to kick Beit Shammai out. That is a huge innovation. In fact, even the words, divrei elokim chayim, the words of the living God, you know where those words come from? They come from Yirmiyahu, from Jeremiah. He says to the false prophets in his day, he says, you dare not prophesy because you are twisting the words of the living God. By using these very words, 
to validate Beit Shammai's opinion, the Gemara is saying there will be no schism here. We will not allow for schism. Now you're right that in this moment of not allowing for schism, it makes the boundaries much clearer for who they do keep outside. Who are the sectarians or those who they, who they refer to as the heretics? But it's really significant that what they're doing here is they're not just defining ideology, they're defining community. And why is it that they won't kick Beit Shammai out? Because Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel have enough in common, ideologically and socially and historically, they have enough in common that they can hold their differences. And that's what we're arguing about today. But not necessarily, lot. If it's a sociological phenomena, then even if they don't have a lot of ideological ideas in common, the mere fact that Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai populate major schools of thought means I can't cancel you. And that would mean, because very often people say, Hillel and Shammai are the words of the living God. But reform, conservative, left-wing, I, I, have, I don't have to include you because you're not Hillel and you're not Shammai. We don't share, you don't, you don't share my ideology. But the point you were pushing for is that we don't, if we don't want to have a sectarian moment, the sectarian moment demands that you can cancel that group which is, a so, which is sociologically significant in your community. I don't care whether I agree with you or not, and I don't care whether I share with you beliefs. It is your socio, it's the sociological fact which defines the conversation. So it's interesting. I think we may disagree on that point because I think that the sociology and the ideology actually, they cause each other in a way, right? You have to imagine, and this is what cancel culture does, you have to imagine that at some point, whoever it is you're canceling, you thought was in your camp. You thought they shared an ideology with you. And then they say something and you say, oof, you, I, I, you're really, you're out of the camp. I, I thought you were with me. So I actually think right. there's a lot more to the ideology that undergirds the sociology, but I understand. I would say we got to, this is something, by the way. That I we yeah. we have to spend more time on in a future podcast. All right, we because will. We will. I because I like you're if you serve if you're a citizen of Israeli society, you claim me. If you serve in the army with me, you claim me. To what extent does sociology or truth determine the limits of pluralism? We got to talk. Right. About We're going to have to go back to this. Ilana, thank you so much for that for that really interesting text. Pleasure. I hope that disagreement was tolerable for both of you. By the way. Um, oh, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. totally. So, you know, th- we this both pop- work at the Hartman Institute. Yeah, we yeah. can't cancel each other. <laughs> so, so we th- need each other. Yeah, exactly. Th- this podcast, we call it for heaven's sake. It's uh, obviously a play on the idea of the Mishnah, which is that there are arguments for the sake of heaven, which are destined to endure. And uh, there's this idea that almost the highest aspiration in our tradition is not to resolve arguments, but to have really good ones. And that's what we're going to try to do here. But always keeping in mind that there is also a validity to the idea that some arguments shouldn't endure, right? If we're going to be true to our own position, 
we also have to give that validity to this idea in cancel culture that there are things beyond the pale that we have to stand up for. And doing what Donnell calls that dance is critically important. And I hope our listeners will join us as we go on this adventure episode to episode, finding out the limits on any issue we take on. So thank you so much for listening to our show. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute and the I Engage program. This episode was edited by David Svikalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman. And the music is provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online on shalomhartman.org. We want to know more. What do you think about this show? So you can write to us at For Heaven's Sake um, at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else. Podcasts are available. See you next time. Thank you for listening.